After Bucha was liberated by Ukrainian soldiers in March last year, it was clear what had happened there. A massacre. At least 31 children have been killed and 19 wounded in Ukraine's Bucha district. That's according to a local... Russia's withdrawal has revealed what looked more like crime scenes than the aftermath of battle. Ukrainians shot in the head at close range. <laughs> Bodies bearing signs of torture and rape. The images of bodies lying in the street are hard to forget. News reports use words like genocide and war crimes to describe the actions of Russian soldiers in Bucha. This is what war crimes look like. Defenseless civilians shot in the head with their hands bound. Residents taking their last ride. Mass graves filled with the bodies of nearly 300 executed people. President Zelensky toured Bucha yesterday, describing what he saw as a war crime and genocide. Yet anyone watching coverage of what happened in Bucha on Russian state television would have seen and heard a very different story. These are fake atrocities which the Russian army was immediately accused of. And Western media began to repeat the accusations simultaneously and without a break for sleep. They covered this like it was staged. It was not for real. Bucha. It was massacre in Bucha. And they covered is that Bucha killings, mass murders, were staged by Ukraine regime. You could see how corrosive that could be, like how even reasonable, well-educated people could be pretty cheaply and easily deceived into believing all kinds of nonsensical and self-contradictory stuff. Last year, Russia passed a law that criminalizes objective reporting about the war in Ukraine. You cannot mention the word Bucha unless you are talking specifically about it being a, a staged provocation. Even the use of the word war is prohibited. And people who violate that law face up to 15 years in prison. According to OBD Info, a Russian-based human rights group, in 2022, there were more than 21,000 arrests made for anti-war statements and speeches. More than 200,000 internet resources have been blocked. And Russians are now flooded with all kinds of conflicting and false accounts about what's really taking place on the battlefield in Ukraine. A very apt metaphor was, was a fire hose of nonsense or lies or uh, whatever you call it, whose purpose is not to uh, imprint a specific kind of worldview, but to dissuade the target audience that the truth can even be ascertained at all. Reporting the truth, rather than the prescribed Putin propaganda, has become an even more dangerous job for Russian journalists, who've had their fingers broken, been poisoned, and even killed. And sometimes that's even happened outside of Russia. As the war in Ukraine has progressed, Putin has tightened his grip on the media. Even reporters working in Russia for well-established foreign news organizations like the Wall Street Journal haven't been spared. Just look at the case of Evan Gerskovich. He was arrested in Russia six months ago and accused of espionage, something the Wall Street Journal and the US government vehemently deny. But it was not always like this. Now we have not just authoritarian state, we have now fascist state. 
There is no independent media inside Russia at all. Still, there are many good journalists who are risking their freedom and lives on everyday basis. So what happened? How does the propaganda machine work inside of Russia? How does the Putin regime keep its tight grip on the media? And how do independent journalists try to get around the controls, often at great risk to their lives? I'm Peter Bergen. Up next, we go in the room with two Russian journalists who've experienced these changes firsthand. Investigative reporter Alexei Kovayov and Galina Timchenko, CEO and publisher of the independent news organization Medusa. They take us inside the disquieting world of Russian media. Russian state propaganda certainly didn't begin with the war in Ukraine. There was plenty of it during the Soviet era, when newspapers were tightly controlled and violating official state propaganda could get you sent to a labor camp or maybe even worse. Still, many say things weren't always as bad as they are now for Russian journalists interested in covering the truth and reporting critically about the Russian government. Like when Galina Timchenko began her career working for the Russian business newspaper Kobasant in the 1990s. I recall my job at the business newspaper as the happiest time in my life. That's in part because the job had reasonable hours. She started at 9 a.m. and finished by 7. There was no 24-hour news cycle. But there was plenty of news to report in the 1990s. The Soviet Union collapsed. Places like Estonia, Latvia and Ukraine declared their independence. Under the new president, Boris Yeltsin, many Russian industries were privatized. Price controls were lifted, inflation soared, there was social and economic upheaval, and lots of independent news organizations got started. Back then, there were unwritten rules about what you could write and not write? No, you know, it was uh, the time of almost absolute freedom in Russia. It was President Yeltsin who strongly opposed any censorship. So we were free to do whatever we wanted to. Even though she was free to write and report whatever she wanted for Commissant, this definitely wasn't her dream job. So in 1999, the same year that Vladimir Putin first came to power, she went to work for Lento Ru, one of Russia's first entirely digital news sites. And eventually she made her way up to be editor-in-chief. But while she was at Lentabru, things began to change. That freedom to report what was actually happening, particularly things unfavorable to Putin, began to disappear. It was a gradual shift. Putin said not once, but many times, that media should serve not the people, but the government, the officials, the state, and all his allies turned their back to the media. They refused to talk. They refused to comment. They did not share information. And year from year, the situation became worse and worse. Alexei Kovayov also experienced these changes. He was working for RIA Novosti, one of Russia's largest newswires. 
Back then, RIA Novosti had reporters in more than 40 countries and covered news in more than a dozen languages. RIA Novosti was a pre-respected place. Respected because although it was completely government-funded, it had a reputation for independence and a diversity of viewpoints. RIA Novosti was headed up by an editor who Alexei says was not afraid to cover tough stories or issues that might not be favorable to Putin. She ran Ria Novosti as a kind of pretty regular newswire, which was a radically different place back then. When he first started working for Ria Novosti, he says there was just one topic that you couldn't cover. There was only pretty much one unspoken rule. Don't come anywhere near Vladimir Putin's family. It wasn't like a memo. <laughs> Nobody would put things like that in the memo. So you kind of were supposed to um, instinctively figure it out for yourself what kind of things were off limits. Alexei says he violated that rule just one time when he ran a kind of satirical story congratulating one of Putin's daughters on her marriage. But nothing happened. His boss simply said, don't do it again. But if someone ran that same story now... That would be a pretty serious offense now. People have been hounded out of Russia and persecuted and a whole publication shut down for violating that rule. But back then in 2011-12, Russia was a very different place. And uh, it was more like, just do what your sense of journalistic ethics tell you. So at Ria Novosti, they covered the big stories, even ones Putin didn't like. For example, about Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader. It covered things that really happened. For example, if the uh, public enemy number one, Alexei Navalny, ran for uh, the mayor's office, it would cover his mayoral campaign like any other publication would do. Alexei and Galina say things started to really change when Putin was re-elected to his third term as president in 2012. The constitution barred him from a third term, at least without a break. So after stepping down for four years to become just prime minister, Vladimir Putin is once again president of Russia. We have passed a long and difficult road together. We now feel confident. We have made our country stronger. We restored our dignity as a great nation. The world now sees a restored Russia. Putin returned to Kremlin. Almost all Kremlin administration changed and they began to talk with the journalists as the rich guys talked to their slaves or servants. His re-election was marked by a series of mass protests, with protesters accusing him of vote-rigging, calling his government illegitimate. Russians woke up to the fact that these elections, both the parliamentary elections and the presidential elections, were ridiculously rigged. People who came up, who went to monitor these polling stations in Moscow and elsewhere. So government officials just simply stuffing ballot boxes full of already signed ballots. And it was a major scandal. And hundreds of thousands of people in Moscow and other cities went out to the streets. And Putin was really, really spooked. Like he didn't expect it at all. 
uh, you can see how the Kremlin was really kind of uh, discombobulated by, by this whole thing. In May 2012, at one of these major um, mass demonstrations in Moscow, there was a, a huge police crackdown. It was like unprecedented brutality, unseen in decades. And then um, Putin just kind of went off the deep end. And uh, I think that's when he kind of shut himself in this kind of conspiracy bunker. And Alexei and Galina say he also really tightened his control over the media, weeding out anyone who wasn't considered loyal. People like them. Alexei lost his job in December 2013. So did his boss. We were all commuting to our work, and then we found out that President Putin, by his personal decree, disbanded the Novosti and merged it into a huge propaganda conglomerate. Putin's chief of staff said the decision to shut down the newswire and reorganize it was about an effort to reduce costs. But Alexei says that's not what happened. It was kind of a hostile merger. Because the first thing they did was fire the previous administration and everyone, every deputy editor and desk chief, including myself, and replaced them with hardcore loyalists who are still running it to this day. For Alexei, this was devastating. And it was a sign that more was coming. The whole propaganda fake news machine went into overdrive. After Ria Novosti was taken over by government appointees, Things began to deteriorate even further, and reliable information about what was really happening in Russia, rather than simple propaganda, became a lot harder to come by. Alexei and his boss weren't the only ones to lose their jobs. Other top editors lost their jobs or were pressured to resign. In 2014, it was Galina's turn. In 2014, you were fired. Yep. In a second. Why? You know, 2014 started with this silent Crimea annexation. And uh, there were huge protests in Kiev. And I asked one of my reporters to come to Kiev and to make a reporting from uh, this independence square in the center of Kiev. He made an interview with the uh, leader of so-called right sector is nationalist party in Ukraine. And we published this interview because it was very interesting. It was a hot topic. And after that, they threatened to revoke our media license. The owner of our media holding organized a meeting. And when I came into the room, he said, I deeply understand that you're a great editor, but you're fired. I have no cards to play with Kremlin. They demanded directly from the Kremlin administration from me to fire you. More than 60 reporters at Lenta Rue published a statement in protest of her firing on Lenta Rue's website. And then many quit their jobs. Galina knew she was going to be fired. The annexation of Crimea went hand-in-hand hand with the ramping up of the Russian propaganda machine. And a strategy to muzzle journalists like her so Putin could control the story about what was happening there. And we were in a, such a hurry those months before my firing to publish this piece and this piece and that and that. And we decided that it's just a matter of time. 
Every day could be the last day. And we are trying to publish as much as possible the uh, most important uh, investigations and reporting from Ukraine. After she was fired, Galina felt like if she was going to have any real sort of impact going forward, she needed to create an entirely new independent news organization. And she knew she couldn't do that inside Russia. I understood that there is no chance that Kremlin would allow me to do this media inside Russia. So in 2014, she and a group of colleagues created Medusa. They established the headquarters in Riga, Latvia. It's the same time zone, the same climate. Russian-speaking population. And it was very important that time. It was cheap to establish media inside Latvia. When we started to discuss how will we um, do it from the scratch, I was sure that Russian authorities would block us in a minute. So once during pre-editorial meeting, I said, guys, I need this media, that if they cut our head, the two heads should grow. What's the name of the beast? And somebody says, Medusa. I said, no, it's Hydra. But what a perfect word, Medusa. In those early years, Medusa still had a staff of reporters based inside Russia. Eventually, they'd have to pull them out. But at this point, they could still do their work. Medusa published their news stories on their website, but also on an app. They created strategic partnerships like one with BuzzFeed, and their reach grew. They had millions of readers. Our mobile application has 1.5 million downloads. But as Medusa grew its staff outside of Russia's borders, independent news inside the country continued to shrink. By the time Russia annexed Crimea, all of the biggest national media were already under very restrictive Kremlin control. In 2017, a law that could designate an organization a foreign agent was updated to make it easier to apply it to the media. Expressing an opinion about Russian policies or officials could put a news organization at odds with the law. And in 2021, Medusa was labeled a foreign agent. This meant Medusa had to attach a warning to every single bit of content they produced, videos, articles, tweets, even ads. The warning had to appear in all caps in a font twice the size of the actual content. This effectively killed Medusa's advertising revenue, in addition to scaring away many of their sources. And since then, the Russian government has labeled dozens of media outlets and over 100 individual journalists as foreign agents, including the newspaper Novaya Gazeta, which won the Nobel Peace Prize for its reporting and was first created in 1993 when Boris Yeltsin was president. Then, in February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine again in an escalation of the war it had begun in Crimea. As the war, which is referred to as the special operation, and that Putin says is about denazifying Ukraine, waged on, the Putin government took things a step further. Russia's prosecutor general designated Medusa an undesirable organization. This meant it actually became illegal for people inside Russia to interact with Medusa's content. 
like linking to a story by Medusa. And it meant the staff of reporters in Russia were even more at risk. Alexei, who'd gone to work for Medusa at that time, left the country on foot. When the full-scale invasion started, the Russian censorship ministry sent a memo to all the surviving uh, online media and told them that unless you expect to be completely outlawed and blocked in Russia and lose access to all your audience, the only source you can use about this special military operation uh, is the press releases of the defense ministry. And it still is. Like, if you are a media working in Russia, you can only use information provided to you by the Russian defense ministry. I think it was March 1 or 2, like a week into the invasion, 25 people and their families working at Medusa still in, in Russia at the moment. I wasn't planning to leave my home. I was planning to stay and cover this uh, because that's like, like the most important job in my life. But at some point there were rumors circulating in Moscow that they were about to introduce martial law, which would of course mean the suspension of all civil liberties and uh, freedom of the press officially, uh, but also maybe closed borders. We went on a, on a kind of a group call and decided that it was no longer safe for us to remain in Russia. And it was a very timely and wise decision because by the time I crossed the Russian-Estonian border on foot with my wife and my dog, the next day Medusa was completely blocked in Russia. And now as the war in Ukraine has moved well past the one and a half year mark with no end in sight, the propaganda machine is in full swing. Every single publication I worked for is now illegal to send a link to someone in Russia. They are all blocked. A majority of older Russians and people living in rural areas still tend to get most of their information from TV. I've seen some stats that suggest as many as 82 million Russians watch state TV every day. And with the government in full control of what's on TV, it can be pretty difficult to make sense of what's really going on. Kremlin relies on this social contract where people disengage themselves from politics. But at the same time, the war effort requires the kind of total mobilization of the population. So there's like this friction between these two contradictory goals. What dominates the news agenda, like top of the hour, it's always the real or made up victories uh, in Ukraine. And then our heroes, like a softball uh, segment about kind of volunteers behind the front line. We are constantly winning and there's like uh, the whole West is against us. And here's a story about the uh, CIA's involvement in regime change operations uh, from uh, 1949 to present day. And there's like very little that connects to actual people's lives. Do they get talking points from the Kremlin? Is a particular copy to be read on the air? How does it work? It's uh, very simple. Every Friday, there is a meeting inside Kremlin administration building where heads of Russian state TV uh, gather and there are some list of topics, main topics of the week. And the head of media desk of Kremlin administration, it's mentioning how every topic should be covered with the precise words or precise tone of voice and so on and so forth. So it's very easy. It's weekly meetings inside Kremlin. 
Well, give us an example or two of the kinds of stories that they have generated that fit this. My favorite but very short example is that they forbid to call explosion, explosion. I do not know how is it in English, but if you clap, they call it clap. The citizens of uh, the city heard a clap, <laughs> not an explosion. They invented their own vocabulary. Russian television is also big on conspiracies about the war, and Alex Jones has made appearances. Alex Jones, доброе утро. It's definitely a pleasure. Для меня большая честь. Спасибо большое. Рад с вами сегодня быть интервью. There's like one defining feature of Russian state propaganda is its uh, blazing inferiority complex. So they always have to have an American figurehead saying the same things they just said because it makes them more believable. That's why Alex Jones and Tucker Carlson are like the biggest stars on, on, on Russian television. People in Russia know that government television is lying. But when it's the uh, American guy saying the same things, it's entirely different. So there's like a lot of synergy between uh, these guys. Conspiracy theories about how nothing you do is ever your fault, but it's always uh, the kind of a shadowy manipulations by these uh, kind of malign forces. It's a very popular narrative in the, in, in the Russian propaganda. Conspiracy theories offer easy answers to very complicated questions. And Putin can't run the machine all by himself, of course. He relies on some key players, like his press secretary, Dmitry Peskov. We made a news game for our readers because we noticed that Dmitry Peskov likes three types of answers. Any question he was asked, he answered, Putin knows, Putin doesn't know, I do not know, does Putin know or not? So we took real news topics, news titles, and our readers should guess how did for real Peskov answer it, replied, uh, Putin knows, Putin does not know, I do not know, does Putin know or not? <laughs> it seems to me that more than a million of our readers played this game. <laughs> you know, one interesting thing about propaganda is, and tell me if you think this is what Putin is doing and, and Russian TV is, you don't have just one explanation of event. You might put out several, some of which may be even contradictory. But the point is... Contradictory. Yeah. The point is not to uh, persuade people of an alternative story. The point is just to confuse people about the truth because there's so many versions out there and no one, no one knows what to believe. Is that the approach? Yeah, absolutely. It's the main idea. Uh, you know, almost all Russians know this poem of Alexander Pushkin, that there is no truth on earth. But Pushkin wrote it about the Lucifer. <laughs> uh, it was the words of uh, the Satan. But it's the main Putin's idea. There is no truth on this earth. Everybody lies. Okay, maybe we are lying, they said, but they are as well. And that's the main point of Putin's propaganda. So I'm fascinated by these polls by the Levada Center, which is described as an independent polling outfit in Russia and uh, is sort of treated that way by the international media. 
and Putin still kind of polls above 80%, which is pretty pretty extraordinary given the fact that even if you're watching Russian TV, there's plenty of information from some of the nationalist Russians that the war is not mm. going as planned. Uh, clearly, everybody yeah. knows the sanctions. It's not that easy to travel abroad. Yeah. So why does he continue to get these extraordinarily high ratings? One of my favorite experts, the Russian sociologist uh, Grigory Yudin, used to say that there is no proper pulse in an authoritarian state. Real pulse could not exist in a Nazi Germany. And Russia is a fascist state. For example, you know that most of these polls are conducting during daytime. So they call you by your home phone. And this is the time when seniors are at home. And every person who is younger than 70 is at his job. So, second, sometimes they are conducting polls from door to door. Somebody uh, ring the bell, you open the door, and you see two people, they have your name, your address, your personal data, and they say, do you approve Putin's policy? For sure, in this state of repressions, People have to choose their living strategy. They are scared. And what's the easiest way to answer? Say, yes, yes, I approve and lock the door as soon as possible. And, you know, this environment of fear and of reports from neighbor to neighbor, from your co-worker, from teachers, it's unfortunately, it became absolutely total. So there is no pulse and there is no active support of Putin. People prefer to answer the easiest way they could. And, you know, Soviet people are very good and they used to hide and they used this double thinking. And we are very good at it. And now, unfortunately, Putin's regime provoked this ghost of Soviet era way of thinking. Leaving aside the question about can you really have accurate polling in Russia right now, but mm -hmm. the war doesn't seem unpopular. The conscription may not be a popular, but uh, there seems to be kind of, to the extent you can tell, support for the war. I think the opposite. That, okay. You know, uh, during Soviet Union, uh, Russians had this habit to hide and to uh, live under the slogan, guys, please leave us alone. Right. And after maybe 15 years of so-called freedom, more or less freedom, now the state intervenes into everyday life, into lives of their kids, into school education, into museums and theaters and movie theaters. And the total mood, it seems to me, more like, uh, leave us alone, please, please. We do whatever uh, you want, but leave us alone, please. It's not a support. It's... Uh, 
people are tired. So is the Putin propaganda machine working? Uh, yeah, but, you know, Putin's propaganda actors, they are not so creative. They repeatedly shout one word, one phrase, and they are not so creative. So they are lazy jerks who used to receive enormous amount of money just for criticizing the opposition or any other voices than their own. So people are tired. You can see kind of a friction between these Kremlin agenda setting, uh, which demands that Russia's invasion in Ukraine and Russia's version of invasion in Ukraine completely dominates the news agenda. But you can also see that people are very tired, like of war, because uh, they keep releasing these propaganda movies painting the Russia's version in uh, in Ukraine's war, but they all fail miserably. And uh, right now, for example, they released kind of a a very crude propaganda movie about the war in Ukraine, painting the massacre in Bucha as an operation by kind of Western security agencies uh, trying to frame Russia and all that. And then at the same time, there's Barbie, the pirated version of Barbie in Russian cinemas because Russia cannot legally import Western uh, movies. So there's a like a the, this pirated version of Barbie completely beat this propaganda movie about Bucha because pe- people don't want to be kind of bombarded with this war propaganda 24-7. Are you concerned about your personal safety? Uh, you know, not uh, not so much because more than a year ago we developed uh, safety protocols. It's banned uh, option for me to order delivery service, <laughs> for example. Or I could not order tap water at restaurant, only at the bottle and in the glass and so on. So it's a little bit disturbing, but uh, nothing special. And even though she says those safety protocols are nothing special, the danger she faces is real. A reporter working for Medusa, who'd been to Ukraine to cover the war, was poisoned and is still experiencing health issues. Galena's phone was recently infected with the highly effective Pegasus spyware. But she says she's focused on staying ahead of the Kremlin's reach. Medusa recently expanded its offices beyond Latvia and now has people based in Berlin and Amsterdam. Latvia has big borderline with Russia, and Russia is an aggressive state. And they have a system for protecting the journalists who are still reporting inside Russia. They divide up the reporting for a story among multiple people, so no single reporter is ever asking all the questions or doing all the interviews. Because uh, it's too dangerous to do it in one hand. Medusa's also running a campaign to promote the use of VPN in Russia. It's a way to connect to the internet via a remote server, sometimes through another country, that also encrypts your personal data masks your IP address, and lets you get around website blocks. Medusa even offered their readers a free VPN service to use. After Medusa was blocked inside Russia, we saw 
40% declining in our website, but 700% growth in Netherlands, 500% growth in France. And I could not imagine that every French person or every Dutch person once woke up and said, let's read Medusa in Russian. <laughs> you know, Netherlands, France, New Zealand, Ireland, it's the usual gate for VPN service. There are millions of Russians, of Russian readers who desperately need independent information. They are locked inside country. They have their own circumstances in their everyday life. So we could not blame them that they did not overthrow uh, Putin. But at the same time, without them, we will not exist. And it's the vital condition for any democratic changes inside Russia, those people who are receiving independent information. So they persevere. Alexei says, as an investigative journalist living in exile in Berlin, there's still plenty he can do online, combing through databases and documents. But he worries about the future and the long-term effects that all this propaganda will have on Russian society because it's not something he says that you can fight with reason. I chose exile because I'm not nearly as uh, courageous as some of the people who are serving seven to nine years in Russian prisons. And uh, little by little, I'm losing touch with my audiences in Russia because I'm not there. No matter how hard I try, I'll never uh, really feel what it's really feels like to be in Russia. And I can only cover what I see with my own eyes, and that's really not much. The choice for Alexei and Galina is a nearly impossible one, and it's hard to see how trying to tell the real story of what's happening in Russia from the outside is anything but the best a Russian journalist can do now. Galina says she just can't go back to Russia. They could arrest me at the border because I am the top manager of so-called undesirable organization. And this position is a crime by definition. So the minimum prison term will be six years. But at the same time, they could charge me with any crimes according to the new military censorship laws. Up to 22 years for high treason. I said farewell to my homeland nine years ago. I remember I drove my car to the border and I cried. I cried all my road from Moscow to Riga. So I said farewell nine years ago. If you're interested in knowing more about the issues and stories we talked about in this episode, we recommend the following books. Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, The Surreal Heart of the New Russia by Peter Pomerantsev, and also Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia by Joshua Yaffa. They're both available on Audible. 
In the Room with Peter Bergen is an Audible original, produced by Audible Studios and Fresh Produce Media. This episode was produced by Alexandra Salomon with help from Holly DeMuth. Our executive producer is Alison Craiglow. Katie McMurrin is our technical director. Our staff also includes Laura Tillman, Eric German, Luke Cregan, Sandy Malera, and J.P. Swenson. Theme music is by Joel Picard. Our executive producers for Fresh Produce Media are Colin Moore, Jason Ross, and Joe Killian. Our head of development is Julian Ambler. Our head of production is Eleanor Bavietz. Eliza Lambert is our supervising producer. Maureen Trainer is our head of operations. Our production manager is Hermenio Ochoa. Our production coordinator is Henry Koch. And our delivery coordinator is Anna Paula Martinez. Audible's chief content officer is Rachel Giazza. Head of content acquisition and development and partnerships, Pat Shah. Special thanks to Marlon Calby, Alison Weber, and Vanessa Harris. Copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC. Mm-hmm.